Hello and welcome to the Michael Collins House podcast. I am your host, Jamie Murphy, and this time on our podcast we have Dr. Alan McCarthy to discuss the interesting history of the paper that kept its eye on the Tsar of Russia, the Skibbereen Eagle. Some of you may know of Alan from visiting Michael Collins House or from the voice of our Michael Collins Hap and Michael Collins documentary. He was described by Dr. John Borganova as the best school of history product of the last decade. And while I would somewhat disagree with Dr. Borganova's publicised thoughts of Michael Collins, which he also alluded to in his podcast here, I would have to agree with him on his thoughts on Alan, uh, who not only is a great historian, but delivers history with a passion that can't help but captivate you. Alan worked at Michael Collins' house for a number of years but is taking a bit of a sabbatical now down under uh, after completing his PhD in UCC, University College Cork in 2019. As part of his research and dissertation for his PhD, Alan has compiled a comprehensive look at the role of newspapers in Cork during the revolutionary period. This has been transformed into a quality book from Four Courts Press entitled Newspapers and Journalism in Cork 1910-23 Press, Politics and Revolution. The book will be out this autumn and looks at this interesting period in newspapers of politics, propaganda, censorship, suppression and all the stories behind it all. This podcast will follow a similar vein, but will focus on the Skibbereen Eagle. It's a fascinating story featuring the Tsar of Russia, Michael Collins, his brother-in-law Patrick O'Driscoll, Garoda Sullivan, propaganda suppression and a tit-for-tat conflict with the opposing Southern Star newspaper also printed in Skibbereen. So, without further ado, here is Dr. Alan McCarthy presenting the Skibbereen Eagle. Enjoy. In 1946, after Ireland's application to join the United Nations was vetoed by the Soviet Union, the satirical journal Dublin Opinion printed a cartoon which depicts Joseph Stalin in conversation with Taoiseach Eamon de Valera. In the cartoon, Stalin informs de Valera that, between ourselves, Dev, Russia has never quite forgotten that article in the Skibbereen Eagle. Now, quite naturally, you might find yourself asking, what in the name of God is going on here? What exactly was the Skibbereen Eagle? What was the offensive article in question? And why was a local newspaper from West Cork being referenced in such a manner nearly 20 years after it closed for the second and final time? Today we'll be discussing the Skibbereen Eagle, a weekly newspaper published in Skibbereen from 1857 to 1922 and from 1926 to 1929, exploring how it became arguably one of the most famous local newspapers in the world. Now, before we dive headlong into the fascinating pages of the Eagle, it is worth mentioning that the Skibbereen Eagle was never officially called simply the Skibbereen Eagle. In fact, the paper went through a number of name changes throughout its existence. It began as the Skibbereen and West Carberry Eagle, or Southwestern Advertiser, and after about 10 years, it changed its name to the West Cork and Carberry Eagle or Southwestern Advertiser, changing again a couple of years later to the West Cork Eagle and County Advertiser. Later, it simply became the Eagle and County Cork Advertiser, and finally, the Cork County Eagle and Munster Advertiser. It was, however, popularly known as the Skibreen Eagle and referred to as such, and this is the title that we'll be using today. The Eagle was a family business, founded in May 1857 by John William Potter, a newspaper man who immigrated to Ireland in 1828 from South Wales. 
The paper initially maintained that it adopted no name of partisanship and consisted of four sheets containing advertisements and snippets of local news. The Eagle would go on, however, to have the distinction of being the first publication to print a poem by Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa. John Eager O'Mahony, a relative of Rossa's through marriage, had previously worked on the Eagle, while Rossa's brother-in-law from his third and final marriage, T. Warren Irwin, contributed a series of articles to the paper. Indeed, Fred Potter claimed that it was Rossa who bought the first ever copy of the paper. Now, despite the supposed endorsement from Rossa, the paper adopted an anti-Fenian position. When an IRB member named Regan was arrested in Castle Townsend in 1865, among the incriminating documents found in his person were the lyrics to ballads that criticised the Eagles' proprietor. While legal proprietors maintained that the paper affected no political creed, its expansion to an eight-sheet publication under the editorship of John Williamson, Frederick Peel Eldon Potter, saw the Eagle engage in substantial coverage of the London social scene, suggesting that London, rather than Dublin, was at the centre of the primarily Protestant Red Paper's socio-political universe. Under Fred Potter's watch, the Eagle really took flight. Potter was an entrepreneur who took a deep interest in social and political questions, was involved in the non-union professional association, the Institute of Journalists, and was invested in international relations. While you may not be familiar with Potter himself, you may have frequented the hotel he established in Skibbereen, the Eldon. It's noteworthy that it was the Eldon where Michael Collins had his last meal before his death in an ambush at Bailnablaw during the Civil War, and it was in the Eldon on this fateful day that he met with Patrick Sheehy, the editor of the Skibbereen Eagle, shortly after the paper had been compelled to stop its printing presses during the Civil War, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself there. Characterised by its outspoken nature towards the end of the 19th century, the Skibbereen Eagle is said to have infamously issued solemn warnings to both the Tsar of Russia and former British Prime Minister Lord Palmerston that it was keeping an eye on them. Now, while some condescendingly suggested that eminent statesman had never heard of that bird of prey, the Eagle's comments represented, as James Burke has accurately suggested, a fine piece of publicity propaganda. There is, however, a degree of confusion as to which Tsar was being watched and indeed whether the phrase originated with the Eagle at all. During the 19th century, the paper was edited for a time by James O'Donovan from Dunmanway, who later became parliamentary correspondent for the Irish Independent and went on to enjoy a distinguished career on London's Fleet Street. O'Donovan later wrote that Frederick Potter did not coin the phrase himself, but adopted and applied it with such flair that it has become forever associated with the eagle. O'Donovan claimed that the quip originated with Jack Bellew, editor of the Cork Chronicle, a newspaper printed between 1765 and 1854. Bellew is said to have preferred covering international rather than local news and appears in a story by Francis Sylvester Mahoney in Fraser's magazine in 1834, which was reproduced in the relics of Father Prout, Father Prout being the pen name of the Cork-born Fleet Street journalist and humorist Mahoney. One of Prout's best-known poems is The Bells of Shandon, which celebrates St Anne's Church on the city's north side and begins with deep affection and recollection I oft times think of those Shandon bells, who sound so wild within the days of childhood, bling round my cradle their magic spells. On this I ponder, whene'er I wander, and thus grow fonder, sweet cork of thee, with thy bells of Shandon that sound so grand on, 
the pleasant waters of the River Lee. Particularly poignant words for a Corkman in exile like myself. Referring to the importance of the birth, marriages and death section in newspapers, Mahoney remarked that Bellew didn't care a shot who came into the world or who left it unless they subscribed to his paper, before claiming that Bellew also kept an eye on Russia, an eye of vigilant observation which considerably annoyed the Tsar. Decades later, in the course of a libel trial, Judge William Kyo is said to have condescendingly attributed the phrase to the eagle, which was ultimately seized upon by the paper. Different sources state this libel trial took place in Limerick, Galway or Fermanagh, so again we see an element of myth-making and Chinese whispers at play. Similarly, an article in the Leeds Mercury in 1937, reprinted in the Sun Star, claimed that A.M. Sullivan of the Nation newspaper used to tell a story about how the eagle kept its eye on Napoleon III, Emperor of France. In terms of the phrase itself, O'Donovan's story highlights Father Prout, a contemporary of Charles Dickens, as the original creator of the phrase, and that Frederick Potter likely heard it while serving his printing apprenticeship in the newspaper industry in London. O'Donovan's claims were published in the Skibbereen Eagle in 1917 and were not challenged by the paper. Perhaps the most important point is that, although it came to be associated with the Eagle indirectly, the paper got its scoop and ran with it, making a number of references to the Tsar going forward. The Eagle certainly did an excellent job of cultivating the attention that the phrase attracted. The paper's editorial section became the outlook from Eagle Watchtower, and for many years contained a large eyeball beneath the heading for the editorial section itself. In 1894, following the death of Tsar Alexander III, the Eagle remarked, How could such a monster live? with the ghosts of his victims hovering around him day and night, the sword of liberty watching to slay him, and the eye of the eagle upon him. We can't say definitively if Alexander III was the only Tsar of the House of Romanov, whose emblem was a two-headed eagle, who the eagle of the Skibbereen variety cast its eye on. The paper itself claimed in 1904 to have kept an eye on Nicholas I during the Crimean War, a conflict that ended over a year before the first issue of the Skibbereen Eagle was actually printed. This would likewise discount A.M. Sullivan's claims about the Eagle keeping an eye on Napoleon III, which was believed to have been done about the time of the Crimean conflict. In a similar vein, it was claimed in the Irish Times that Lord Palmerston read the article that referred to him from the Eagle in the House of Commons, although I've been unable to find this in the House of Commons archive. An Irish MP, William Shaw, did remark in the comments that, For my own part, the only newspaper I am afraid of is the Skibbereen Eagle, which made a greater man than me, the late Lord Chancellor, tremble in his shoes. The Irish agitator transcribed the speech as referring to Lord Palmerston, but Palmerston never actually held the title of Lord Chancellor, so it's actually unclear who Shaw is referring to here. Although not referring to the assassination of Tsar Nicholas II directly, Nicholas having been heavily criticised by the Eagle in 1898, the paper referred to the tyranny of the Tsardom being overthrown by the greater tyranny of Bolshevism in response to the shooting of Constable Edward Bolger in Kilbritton in December 1919. Ultimately, the historian Matthew Potter argues that the comments made by Fred Potter, no relation, reflected the ongoing circulation battle between the Southern Star and the Eagle, along with highlighting Fred Potter's extrovert personality and genuine commitment to the British liberal ideology, which viewed Russia as the incarnation of cruel despotism.
The ongoing circulation battle is important here, and like the origins of the eagle's watchful eye, it can be a bit murky. One of the biggest challenges encountered by media historians of this period is the tendency of newspapers to exaggerate their circulations at a time before independently verified circulation figures were common, an exception here being the Irish Independent, which was owned by Castletown Baronet of William Martin Murphy, which began releasing verified circulation figures in 1909. This tendency towards exaggeration is exemplified by the West Cork People, a newspaper produced by Patrick O'Driscoll, brother-in-law of Michael Collins, which claimed a readership of 200,000 people, or the Skibbereen Eagle itself, which proclaimed itself the world's largest penny paper. The desire to procure revenue in the form of advertising motivated these exaggerations, the aim being to convince advertisers that not only was their paper widely read, but its circulation was superior to that of a competitor. In the years 1910 to 1916, Cork newspapers were deeply divided on the Home Rule question. While the majority of the country supported John Redmond's Irish Parliamentary Party, or IPP, in Cork, the All-Fireland League, a Home Rule party that had broken away from the main body of the IPP, enjoyed extensive success, capturing and retaining eight seats in the January and December general elections in 1910. The All-Fireland League, or AFIL, found a champion in the Eagle, whose primarily Protestant readership appreciated the policy of its leader, William O'Brien, which was the three C's, Conference, Conciliation and Consent. These sought to address concerns among Unionists about a Dominion Parliament in Ireland, rather than coercing the minority into governance from Dublin. What supporters of O'Brien's did not appreciate were reports by the Southern Star about AFIL meetings, which made claims like, The hall was fairly well filled with a few pensioners and a few sightseers. Having briefly flirted with the concept of William O'Brien's All-Fireland League, the Southern Star resolutely recommitted itself to the IPP and its leader John Redmond in 1910. This move would invite yet another exchange of insults between the Eagle and Star which characterise and enliven their coexistence. One example is the following message by the Southern Star to its advertisers, and I quote, Everybody in West Cork now reads the Star, except very stupid and backward people, who cannot appreciate a good thing when they see it. These are no use to the advertiser. This kind of fratricidal strife would similarly shape the emergence of the official AFIL paper, the Cork Free Press. Its founder, William O'Brien, had impressive political and journalistic credentials. He had been one of the protagonists of the Land League and had garnered the reputation of Parnell's spin doctor through the pages of United Ireland. In the oft-repeated tale, William O'Brien and his supporters were prevented from approaching the platform at the United Irish League's ill-tempered Batten Convention of 1909. Now, the thing with many O'Brien's supporters at this time was that many of them shared a common trait. They tended to come from County Cork. Consequently, they were informed at the convention that no one with a Cork accent would be allowed to speak. Needless to say, thank God such gross miscarriages of justice are behind us. In response to being denied a hearing, O'Brien broke away from the mainstream Irish Parliamentary Party and formed his own constitutional home rule party, the All-Fireland League. Prior to this, he launched the new grouping's campaign newspaper for the January 1910 general election, the suitably named Cork Accent, which was later replaced by the Cork Free Press. O'Brien wrote in his memoirs that he saw the foundation of a newspaper as essential 
Owing to the proliferation of IPP-supporting journalists in the offices of their organs in Dublin, Cork and Belfast, which not only gave them a daily monopoly of the liberal press of Great Britain as well as Ireland, but enabled them, with an extraordinary success, to permeate the public opinion of America and Australia with their own version of events. The Cork Free Press was officially founded by O'Brien, but primarily funded by his wife, Sophie Rafalovich, who described her husband as a born newspaper man. It also received the backing of supporters such as Lord Dunraven, Lady Fitzgerald Arnett, whose husband Sir John Arnett was the proprietor of the Irish Times, and Colonel Hutchison Poe. Now, along with its political and intellectual significance, the physical production of any newspaper is also important, a feature that has gone largely unexplored or perhaps better underexplored by historians. This is because newspapers as objects represent an intriguing intersection of both non-material culture insofar as it seeks to convey ideas and values to its readers and material culture as the physical copy of the newspaper itself is steeped in visual and symbolic significance. In the first volume of his memoirs, Dublin Made Me, Todd Andrews, a veteran of the War of Independence and perhaps better known today as Ryan Tuberty's grandfather, recollected that people's religion always and their politics often were clearly displayed in the trams by the newspaper read. Juxtaposing the reading of print newspapers with online editions in the digital age, academics have observed that, in its physical dimensions, a print newspaper embodies the meaning and significance not only of its content, but also of itself as a specific object and of the overall experience of using it. This is a fascinating idea as, of course, in the present day we consume news on phones, on tablets and on laptops. And, you know, you're probably listening to this very podcast on one of those very devices. This provides a cloak of anonymity for the sources from which we gather our news. Not so during the Irish Revolutionary period. And stepping onto a Dublin tram, in Andrew's case, with either a copy of the Irish Independent or the Irish Times made a clear symbolic statement about who you are and your political orientation. This was also evident in Cork in 1910 upon the launch of the Cork accent, which was loaded with symbolic importance. The Eagle reported that a meeting of the United Irish League was scheduled to take place near the lock in Cork City, and that a man carrying a banneret in the form of a copy of the Cork accent walked boldly into the midst of the League party. There was a rush made for the man and his newspaper was torn to shreds while the standard bearer himself was very roughly handled. Writing about a visit of William O'Brien to Skibreen in 1910, the Skibreen Eagle recorded that all along the route, flags, banners, handkerchiefs and copies of the Cork accent were waved from the windows. As indicated by the extensive burning of newspapers throughout the revolutionary period, newspapers as material objects clearly were an important social signifier. Indeed, the Skibreen Eagle itself fell prey to several boycotts, raids and assaults on both its offices and staff during the War of Independence and during the truce period. News agents had been discouraged from stocking the paper and advertisers discouraged from buying space in its columns, while its editor Patrick Sheehy told the Irish Grants Committee that people found in possession of the Eagle were liable to be punished. This marked an extraordinary change from the time that preceded the Revolutionary Period of which Cork historian John T. Collins wrote that 
Despite their different associations, one farmer took the eagle and his neighbour the star and they swapped papers on a Sunday evening. Now, the experiences of the eagle and star during the War of Independence and Civil War really are quite remarkable, but unfortunately lie outside the scope of today's podcast. Both papers remained increasingly opposed to each other as the revolutionary period progressed, with the Eagle supporting the AFIL or O'Brienites, regularly reproducing material from the Cork Accent and Cork Free Press, while the Southern Star supported the IPP or Redmondites. Both papers, in keeping with the views of the party leaders of the parties they supported, backed recruitment for the Great War, with the Eagle's editor and managing director Patrick Sheehy and Jasper Wolfe being particularly enthusiastic in their efforts. Both the Eagle and Starr reacted to the Easter Rebellion of 1916 with shock, the Eagle writing that the Rising represented a period of bloodshed, rapine and disorder which few cities in the world have ever experienced, albeit acknowledging that their countrymen were misguided. Among these misguided men was Grodo Sullivan, a Skibbery native who flew the tricolour over the GPO that fateful Easter tide. It might come as a surprise to learn, and indeed it may well have came as a surprise to the proprietors of the Eagle, that Grodo's brother Michael was actually on the printing staff of the Skibbery Eagle. In his 1911 census entry, Michael O'Sullivan, or Nihal O'Sullivan, gave his occupation as Clodor, lino operator, which I think is a lovely piece of Irish, both of his parents and older brother Donald came to Monogat Irish speakers, while his brothers Tyg, Owen and Paddy were later members of Cork No. 3 Brigade during the War of Independence. Grode was at this point a member of IRA GHQ in Dublin. As a result of the actions of all brothers, the family home at Coolnagaran was burned down in 1921, while Michael was dismissed from the Eagle as a result of his close ties to the IRA. The division between the Eagle and Star wasn't always about high principles, and to a certain degree it actually represented a personal dispute between Patrick Sheehy and James Burke, who overlapped as editors of the Eagle and Star for a period, and came from rival political families in Skibbereen. This division certainly became more pronounced in general with Sinn Féin's purchase of the practically bankrupt Southern Star in 1917. Indeed, Pather O'Hanrakon, the fulcrum between the buyers and sellers, stated that the paper was quite cheap as the then-owners were keen to offload it. Similarly, J.B. O'Driscoll recalled that it was then a dying concern and practically bankrupt. Small as the purchase price was, we found it hard to raise it. This acquisition resulted in a host of prominent Republican figures becoming attached to the star, including shareholder Michael Collins, who was a relative of Grohan and Michael O'Sullivan's, Gaelic League organiser Pader O'Hanrakon, and future TD Sean Hayes. Sean Buckley, who was later intelligence officer for the Cork No. 3 Brigade, was on the board of directors for a time, as was James Barney O'Driscoll. Almost as if to announce their arrival, office manager James O'Brien was arrested for being in possession of a revolver while travelling by bicycle to Skibbereen shortly after the Sinn Féin takeover. From Shepparton, between Skibbereen and Lepp, O'Brien later married Nora Connolly, formerly a contributor to the Irish Citizen and daughter of executed rising leader James Connolly. As such, the Sudden Star supported the Republican movement during the latter part of the revolutionary period, while the Skibbereen Eagle, which once had its eye on the Tsar, now had Sinn Féin, the IRA, 
and the southern star in its crosshairs. Alas, that story will have to be held over for another day. Thanks very much for listening. Take care and be sure to keep a watchful eye on things with the Skibreen Eagle. So there we have it. A fascinating look at the history of the Skibbereen Eagle and an interesting insight into the reality of life during the revolutionary period and beforehand. As Alan has described in his book, newspapers are not just a source of history, but a force of history that have helped create the narrative to the masses. We can see from this tale of a small rural newspaper, which would have you believe it had the Tsar of Russia quaking in his boots, made a lasting impression which would even continue to this day. Even today in a period where fake news is a phrase we often hear, it's clearly evident that newspapers and the media in general are intertwined with the politics of the day, as they fight for their share of the market and in many cases their survival. Propaganda, censorship and suppression are still alive and well today, but maybe in a different format than they were in the Eagles time. I enjoyed this podcast very much and I hope that Alan might consider delving into the fascinating story of the conflict between the Southern Star and the Skibbereen Eagle during the War of Independence even further. It certainly is another podcast in itself and I hope we get to hear that sometime. I certainly look forward to reading about it anyway when the book comes out in the autumn. I would like to thank Alan who brought this podcast to us all the way from the Australian Outback and thank you for listening. Please come back again for our next podcast episode coming very soon. I am Jamie Murphy and this has been the Michael Collins House Podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Michael Collins House Museum, Clonakilty. Funded and run by Cork County Council.